You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, we're, we're wrapping up our John Prologue series this morning, and if you have a, there's pew Bibles there. This, that, this is the positive of being in the nave. There are Bibles around. Um, so if you have a Bible you want to grab or something maybe on your phone, um, let's turn to John chapter 1 in my and I'm going to be very selective this morning, but I'd like to spend some time uh, in verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. And I will read that to us. John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And, and this is... Um, I, I took my son last, my, my, my youngest son is, uh, is taking cello um, to, to, the, to the dismay of his older brothers because they have to listen to him practice. It's a bit of a, a lot of bickering going on over that. Um, but I took my, my, my youngest son last night to, to the symphony um, and it was fantastic. I just, we just had a great time. They, they played the, um, the first one was uh, the, uh, the overture to um, Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet. That, that one made the cut for a reason. That was pretty good. Um, the last one was, was the uh, Symphony Fantastique, I think is the name of it. But uh, lots of timpanis in this one. And, and the, the, the timpani for the, uh, player for the Alabama Symphony, who's been in our own church, is a striking man. I don't know, I mean, he's got this sort of silver long hair. It's like some Norwegian god just appeared, you know, among us. Um, and so he's back there and, 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 and play. And there was a lot of timpanis. All of that to say, if there's a kind of timpani roll that begins to build in the prologue, you get a cymbal crash in verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1 is a big cymbal crash. The timpanis hit pretty hard. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That, that, that's, there's no building up. I mean, that's, that's about as profound a statement as can be made about the significance of Jesus. And then things kind of go sort of, what is it, uh, softer again. And they build again to the, to the big moment, I think, in verse 14. So this, this is, the timpanis are rolling here again. Um, and the word became flesh. That's it. That's the stunner. That's the shocking thing that's now moved into our moment in time. Uh, The Word became flesh. I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about just that phrase this morning. We'll come back to it. But the Word became flesh and then dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Now, this is all these terms here are bubbling with Old Testament significance. And we have seen His glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father who is full of grace and truth. So if, I, if, we're, if we're sort of painting a, a, a scene here for us this morning, the, these are the, these are the, the sort of set of, of, of uh, the triptych, the set of paintings that are worth sort of thinking about. Number one, the Word became flesh. We'll toss that out there. Um, he dwelt among us. We need to think about what that means. We have seen His glory, the significance of that claim. We've actually seen with our eyes the glory of the Word of God. And the Word of God brings to us um, grace and truth. Right? So a lot packed into one verse. John 1.14 is a significant verse uh, theologically to the whole 
frankly, theology of the Gospel of John, um, but of the whole Bible, because it's as if the Bible is sort of moving around uh, and swirling around in its totality, um, this verse right here. Now, let me read the rest of the prologue and finish it out, and then then we'll put, put, put it in reverse. John bore witness about him. So here we have John the Baptist again who we heard about this morning. I forgot the, the, our, our reading this morning uh, later on in John. Um, John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and then grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. In verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, that is the Word, Jesus of Nazareth, he has made him known. I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning on verses 15 through 18, but it's worth at least pointing out a couple of things. Number one, the identity of John the Baptist as a witness to Jesus Christ. Um, You heard uh, Craig this morning quote uh, Karl Barth, uh, the Swiss theologian, um, I, I, I too have a little bit of a you know, fixation with, with Bart. Um, and apparently Karl, Karl Bart's office and his study in Basel, Switzerland is now an archive of all of his papers and his materials. And they kept his office um, as it was the day of his death. It's still that way today. E- even, even the date on the calendar, some April something 1968, it's all there. Um, and, and Bard, as sort of all sort of European academics, had you know lots of books around, but a very sort of streamlined um, office. And in his office, he had three uh, three uh, paintings or three pieces of artwork that were hanging on the wall. Um, one of them was a picture of John Calvin. Not a surprise. Uh, John Calvin. He wrote a book on John Calvin when he was early in his academic life, and he said John Calvin um, speaks Chinese. He's like, I, I'd learned all this sort of liberal theology, but when I first began to engage John Calvin and what he was presenting to me about the glory and the beauty and the grandeur of God and Jesus, when I began to read Calvin, it was Chinese to me. It was like standing at the bottom of the Himalayas and someone saying, start to climb up that. So he had a picture of John Calvin and also a picture of, of uh, Mozart there on his, um, on his, uh, uh, on, in his study. Just as an aside, Bart loved Mozart. He would begin every day listening uh, to Mozart. That's how he, he just thought Mozart was as close. And, he, and, and if you knew Bart's theology, you know how he's playing here. Because he was as, as close to a second incarnation as we might have had. That was what he said. Just, his, his beauty, his, the beauty of his music was for Bart was otherworldly. So there he had Mozart and Calvin. But in front of him in his office was a, the only artwork in the room, the only painting in the room was a reproduction of um, the Eisenheim altarpiece uh, that was, is hanging at, at an altar. Uh, uh, I think it's in, in Eisenheim. It's, by, it's not Guggenheim. Who was the, uh, the, 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 um, the painter? Oh, one of you will remember. I've forgotten. Uh, but anyway, the, the painting is it's harrowing. Um, it's a scene of Jesus on the cross. He, he, looks, he looks very, um, it it's, has a sort of medieval feel about it. It's, it's a grotesque scene of Jesus on the cross. But central to the painting, so you have Jesus on the cross, and right next to Jesus is a very sort of haggard, bony John the Baptist. 
And what John the Baptist is doing is he's holding up a finger, pointing away from himself to the one that's hanging on the cross. And for Bart, it was really important. This is, again, based out of the theology of the Gospel of John. What, what was John the Baptist's role in the divine economy, in, in this redemptive historical moment? What did John the Baptist do? He models for us, in a way, what all Christians are called to be and to do. We exist as bony fingers, not pointing to ourselves or to our achievements, but pointing away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The very heart of John the Baptist's existence was to point away from himself. He had disciples that were following him. And what does he do? He pushes them away from following John the Baptist. You go and follow him. You follow. This is the one who's come to baptize in the Holy Spirit. This is the Lamb of God who's taking away the sins of the world. So his existence is an existence that points away from himself to the glory and the honor of another. Um, so that's what you have sort of coming out here again in this last part of, of John, uh, uh, of the prologue. Now, back to John 1.14, and we'll spend the rest of our time our time here. Uh, first, and can, are you okay? We're just going to work through this phrase by phrase. Hopefully this won't get too boring. But let, let's do the first phrase. And the word uh, became flesh. Now, th- think about all that's packed into those few words there in John 1.14. We already know that John has not cleared his throat in any way to identify The word of God revealed in Jesus of Nazareth as the very second person of the Trinity that was the agent of creation and is to be identified with God. The word was with God and the word is God. So there's there's no sort of lack of clarity here about the eternal identity of the second person of the Trinity as fully God. The shocking thing, the, the thing that... We can maybe see now in retrospect that's clearer. But in prospect, the shocking thing is that this word, the very identity of God himself, um, eternally in his own triune relation, has now stepped into time and become a human being. That's the shocker. And of course, we get it because we have lived in a Christian existence, imagine many of us, for most of our lives, so this is old hat. But to make a claim the word is becoming flesh and dwelling among us, took on flesh and became man, there were no philosophies of the day that were ready for something like that. In fact, those few words right there are words that caused all kinds of controversy, both in the early church and even moving into uh, the later area, say the 3rd and the 4th century, where they're thinking through, what does it mean for Jesus to be God and a man? So this little phrase here, and the word becoming flesh, is a remarkable claim about God, and it's not something that's supposed to happen. The nature of God's godness, if one is thinking according to the terms of the day, is that God is other than mortal existence. Mortality and immortality don't overcome, don't meet one another. I mentioned this to some of you before, um, this, this novel that came out, I think, last year by Madeline Miller called Circe, um, which is a sort of fascinating take on Greek mythology from a, from a feminist perspective. It's, it's a very interesting novel, but you get a very strong sense here that the realms of mortality and immortality are distinct from one another, even though the immortal beings, the divine beings of the Greco-Roman sort of pantheon are, are a mess. I mean, it's like the worst junior high day you can experience. Um, 
But needless to say, the fact that the God who created the world and, was ne- and, and the world was not necessary to his being took flesh onto himself and entered into the world raises all kinds of questions. And yet, this is central to the hope of the gospel. The word became flesh. So when I go back to Isaiah the prophet, and I see Isaiah the prophet say things like, I'm going to do new things in your midst. I'm going to break forth in your midst and do the kinds of things that will make some sense about the past because I'm going to work in accord with my character and my identity. But I'm going to do new things in your midst, and the new things that I do are going to be very surprising, yes, even shocking. And I think this is the moment that we have before us to recognize that God, the Word of God, steps into time and takes on human flesh. And all the frailty that comes along with human flesh so that he can identify himself with sinners like you and me. Israel was called to be a light to the world. That was Israel's mission for her existence. Her election and special privilege in God's, in God's redemptive history was not just an election that, and, and a privilege that was to be prized in isolation it was a call that was missional to the whole world. We heard it read this morning. Again, I didn't plan on this. We heard it read this morning out of Isaiah chapter 49. It's too light a thing for you, um, O servant, just to be a light. I mean, just to, to bring back the chosen one of Israel. I'm going to make you a light to Gentiles, the whole world. And yet we know because you've read Judges and Samuel and the book of Kings and Chronicles You know something about Israel's history and the way in which she engaged and brought about her own responsibility to the nations. It was a disaster from beginning to end. And here you have Jesus of Nazareth stepping into time and taking on the mission of Israel for Israel and for the world. And this is when Isaiah the prophet says God will bear his holy arm of salvation. The way in which I like to think of that is God has looked for his people to act in faithfulness. They will not do it. They're unable to do it. So what does God do? God rolls up his own sleeves and exposes his own arms and says, okay, I'll take care of it then. And this here in John chapter 1 is God having his sleeves rolled up, taking care of the redemption of the world that he's called Israel to be, and God is now taking it into himself to do it for the, for the whole of humanity. And the word became a flesh. Um, of course, an important text that helps explicate some of this is Philippians chapter 2. Um, uh, who being in the form of God. right? So here's Paul. And I, I mean, and maybe I'm elaborating here a little bit, so take this with a grain of salt. But my, my sense is Philippians 2 is Paul's own apostolic reading of John chapter 1. Right? There, there's a relationship between John 1 and Philippians 2. And here's the Apostle Paul telling us that um, Jesus Christ, uh, the Word, um, did not think it was uh, a, a robbery um, for him to, le- to l- his equality with God was something that he had, and he divested himself of that and took on flesh, became in the form of human likeness, and he took on human likeness and humanity even up until the point of death. That was the measurement of his obedience. He was obedient to the Father by taking on human flesh. And what is, he, what is he demonstrating here? He's demonstrating the divine death blow to the pride of humanity. This is the death blow to the pride of humanity. It's the humility of God himself. 
that, that's the part with the word becoming flesh that I'm not sure we always give enough or do credit to. The significance of the humility of God that's on display with this happening. God is showing his own divine humility to identify himself with the very creatures that he created for their own redemption and salvation. To take on flesh, to become a creature like you and like me. I mean, that's the one thing that Isaiah the prophet is very clear about. Isaiah wants you to know that God's glory is a glory he does not share with anything else. And he is not to be confused with his creation. He is the creator. He's the one who speaks and the worlds come into existence. And now, in the overwhelming kindness and love of his mercy towards sinners, and not just sinners, the whole disordered cosmos, the whole disordered universe, God the Father sends his Son into time to become a creature with you and me. He identifies himself with creatures like you and like me. The Word becomes flesh. The point of this is, All of our salvation and all of our hope for eternal security rests on these few words right here. The word becomes flesh. The way in which the early church fathers would talk about this, think Irenaeus and then later on Athanasius. The way the fathers would talk about this is he took on what we have so that we could then participate and enjoy the fruits of who he is in his divine being. He comes down, that's called the great exchange. He comes down and takes on humanity's existence with all of its weaknesses. And in doing so, he allows us to participate in the beauty of the divine life that he's had with his father. The word becomes a flesh. And in this word becoming flesh, we see Jesus living our lives for us, believing for us acting in faithfulness for us, and going to the cross and rising again from the dead uh, for us. The word uh, becomes uh, flesh. Um, Oh, just a few other things to talk about here on this. One, One thing, too, that I think is encouraging is to recognize, and this was, by the way, a big kick in the knee against some pretty standard philosophical systems of this day, or at least the next century, in the second century A.D., And that is when Jesus, when the word takes on flesh and becomes man, we see God also demonstrating for us that he loves his created world. In other words, there's a certain kind of spirituality and even Christianity that was that was, I think, somewhat popular maybe amongst kind of evangelical, um, a certain kind of evangelical revivalist piety of the 19th century, even the early 20th century. I've I've sang sort of hymns like this growing up as well that sort of understood that this world is just, it's, it's, the, the material world is, is a problem for us to try to escape. In other words, our hope in the future is to be detached from this material world so that we can enter into the world of spirit that's not bound by the world of matter, by things, mountains, trees, uh, um, events, uh, uh, other bodies, right? I mean, just think about all the problems that are created in our lives just because we have to engage other bodies that are around us. And there was a kind of spirituality that saw um, the goal of of Christian existence is to escape the body and to enter into the world, the sort of netherworld of the spirit. Um, And I don't know, I mean, I I hope this isn't overly controversial this morning, but that's, that's something, that's Buddhism. I mean, there, there are, if, you, if you're into that, there are options out there for you. Um, but, the, but the point is uh, that, that that's, that's not Christianity. 
Christianity has, has, has never sort of batted an eye at the material world. In fact, for the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of the body is really important. And the fact that Jesus raised from the dead bodily and exists, and I don't understand all of this, admittedly, who does, but exists bodily now for you and for me. He's a human being now, raised and glorified in his humanity, but human nonetheless in continuity with his human existence here on earth. The Bible loves the created world. That's why Isaiah's vision of the future at the end of Isaiah is a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation, so that we live into the fullness of the material world that God has created. And here we see in John chapter 1, verse 14, it's not the word evacuating himself from the material, fleshly existence of humanity. It's the word actually entering into humanity and taking on flesh. God, God loves his world, right? Um... David, keep me honest on time here. Ooh, it's flying. Now, next phrase. And the word became flesh and uh, dwelt among us. Now, I know that many of you have taken Bible studies on the Gospel of John, so this won't come as news to you. Um, But this is a really fun turn of phrase here. The word becomes flesh. Um, The word, by the way, in becoming flesh did not divest himself of his divinity in any way at all. He remains completely and fully divine and yet takes on something that he did not have before, namely human flesh. Now, admittedly, these are, these are intricate theological matters, but they're very important uh, to Christian faith. We, we confess them, by the way, in our creeds around here every Sunday morning. It really matters that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he's not schizophrenic. He's a single subject. Those are really important things to claim. So the word becomes flesh, takes on flesh, and then notice this language here, and he dwelt among us. That's a technical Greek term that could legitimately be translated this way. The word becomes flesh and tabernacles with us. And first century Jews who would read this, and God-fearers of the first century who are reading John chapter 1, and they know their Old Testament, They hear those terms there, the word becomes flesh and tabernacles with us, and all kinds of associations are going on in their mind about the significance of this claim. Because what immediately springs to mind is the tabernacle slash temple theology of the Old Testament. What was the tabernacle that in time became the stability of the temple itself? What was was all of that about? And and again, you know, here's, here's one of those things that are probably worth sort of, you know, I'm, I'm going to overstate it. You know the nature of teaching is you tend to be a little bit hyperbolic. But I, I'm going to overstate it here and say that at least somewhere near the center, if not the center, of the Old Testament's theological construal of God is that God gives himself to be present with his people. He's with his people. Think Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, The presence of God or the lack of God's presence are really the kind of two nodal points around which the whole complicated relationship between Israel and God tend to exist. This is why it's so horrific when Ezekiel the prophet says, I was looking at the temple, this is a Genelette paraphrase, I was looking at the temple and out the back door goes the presence of God's spirit out into the wilderness. 
And what Ezekiel's like, that's, that, that's not good, right? Um, because what's, what's the temple? What's the tabernacle? It's a, it's a physical manifestation of God's presence with his people. And that wherever they would go, I mean, think about these 40 years in the wilderness, traveling all around. Wherever they would move next, up goes the tabernacle, um, up goes the tent pegs, up, roll up the sides of the, of the tabernacle, get all the instruments together, going to our next campsite. And the first thing again is what? Tabernacle gets established. It's in the middle of all of the people. And what do we see? It's God's presence with his people. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. It's the promise of God's presence. And when the temple in time gets built, it functions all off of this tabernacle theology. The temple is the promise of life in the midst of the, of, of the reality of death that human beings live in and all of our struggles. It's a sacra- for lack of a better term, it's a sacramental presence. It's a physical thing that can be seen. That's an instrument by which God gives his own very presence to his people. It's why it's a holy, sacred place. When Jonah, for example, hops on a boat uh, and goes to Tarshish to get away from the call of the Lord, his theology is really not all that bad. I mean, I used to think, Jonah, are you nuts? I mean, what are you talking about tr- trying to get on a boat to get away? Don't, don't you know that God is omnipresent? And of course, you know, Jonah gets a, a, a pretty hard life lesson that indeed uh, God knows where you are and can find you anywhere on, on the sea as well. So that's certainly true. But the fact that Jonah was trying to get away from the temple, um, there's some logic to that for Jonah. In fact, when Jonah's in the belly of the whale, and he's go, or the fish, that might matter to some of you, or the fish, um, and he's going down you know, to, to the gates of hell, that's what, he, and that's what he tells us in Jonah 2, I'm going to Sheol land. Um, not, we're not super clear about what Sheol is in the Old Testament, but I can guarantee you don't want to go. I, I do know that for sure. Um, and as Jonah thinks this fish is his one-way ticket to Sheol land, and he thinks it's over for him. He does, if, if you get swallowed by a fish, that's it, right? I mean, you're, you're done. Um, he didn't know that the fish was the instrument of his salvation. That didn't happen until after the whole vomiting moment. Um, but while he's in the fish, he's thinking this is over. And isn't it fascinating? Do you know what Jonah laments the most when he's about to go to Sheol land? He says, will I ever be able to see your temple again? Will I ever be able to see the temple? Because that, and that's, that tells us something about the logic of Jonah chapter 1. What was he doing? I'm getting out of the temple i got to get as far away from the temple as possible because to be in proximity to the temple is to be in proximity to God's very presence. And the further I can get away from that, the further I can get away from his call. And as he's going down to Sheol land, what Jonah's last words, at least he, he thinks, are is, will I ever be able to see God's temple again? The promise of his presence where life is. To be near the presence of God is to be in proximity to life itself. And here Jonah is heading to death. So when we come to John chapter 1 verse 14 and we see the word becomes flesh and tabernacles with us. All of a sudden it's like the Bible, this is in my own sort of mental imagination, but the Bible begins to move. It's it's as if the Old Testament and the New Testament begin to turn in on each other in such a way that they're moving around in almost concentric circles around uh, this significant moment here in John 1.14 where all of it begins to make sense. All of that tabernacle stuff 
The Shekinah, where a glory of God, the manifest glory of God physically, whether it was a cloud during the day or a pillar of fire at night, all of it now is beginning to make more sense. That was all preparing us for something. It was preparing us for this paradigmatic, signal, unique moment in God's redemption of the whole world when he would step into time in his son, in Jesus, in a human being, and be present with us. He's the tabernacle. He's God's presence in our midst. To be near Jesus is to be near life itself, to be near the truth, to be near his, his grace. Um, this is why Jesus says in a very provocative way to the, to the Pharisees, oh, this temple, just tear it down in three days and I'll raise it up again. And of course, you know, the Pharisees laughed him off the street. It took a long time to build this, tab- this temple. And then what does the gospel writer say? They did not know that he was speaking about his own body. So temple theology in the Old Testament provides for us the substance of what we have here. Let me say these last few things and then I'll let you go. There's two words that get associated throughout this whole prologue that seem to show up again and again. And I think there are two words worth taking away, at least for us this morning, on the significance of what Jesus is for us as the word who's become flesh to bring the very presence, the life of God, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God into our midst. And they are grace and they're truth. And we need both. In spades, we need to be in proximity to Jesus Christ, to be near Jesus, to be in Jesus, to have a self-identity, a consciousness that my identity is an identity that's in Christ, is to be in the actual location and place of grace itself. It's where it is. And we're all in need of grace. It's why we come to church a lot to remind us, to recalibrate us again to that place of where our true humanity lies and our true safety lies in him. We have no safety or health outside of him. We just prayed that this morning. And the second word is truth. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think about this because I've got kids who are moving into, I mean, especially in our, the intellectual environment of our day is one where truth is such a sort of fluid thing. Um, You'll even hear sort of very intelligent people use phrase like, that's their truth, right? So that truth becomes a kind of personal discovery. Um, and lots to talk about here and lots to unpack. But let me just say, leave with you the way in which John's gospel wants you to think about the category of truth and truth-seeking. Truth is a person. And it's something that we can be in proximity and nearness to. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And we desperately want the truth. We know, we know, don't we, the danger and the hurt, the harm that comes from the lie. We know it. Adam and Eve felt it very acutely. We know the danger that comes from the lie. And what we need more than anything else is the clarity and the light of God's truth. And so what I think we have here is a rather massive claim from John that if you want to know the truth, and the way in which you engage the world around you, then the lens by which you must engage your world is through the lens of Jesus Christ. That's where truth is to be found and discovered, and that's how truth is to be measured as we engage the complexities of the world in which we live in now because we need grace and we need the truth.
So Lord, um, leave us with these truths. We, we all, we're all aware that we've spent three weeks in, in 18 verses. And we, we are just bubbling on the surface of something that's so profound. Because what you say in these verses, Lord, is at the center of, the, of, of all existence and reality. You've become flesh so that you would identify with sinners. And you tell us, Jesus, in Hebrews, that your identification with sinners, your becoming a human flesh, human flesh means that you now know how to pray for us. You know how to intercede for us. You know what it is to be tempted. You know what it is to be frail like we are. And you ever live to intercede for us and to pray for us. Let us know the grace that comes from that. And Lord, in a world that is spinning philosophically and intellectually and culturally and politically, we, have, we live in a spinning world. Very hard for us, very hard for me, Lord, to organize my thought patterns. I pray that you'll let John's word, inspired word this morning, Remind us that we order the truth through the lens of Jesus Christ and how you have revealed yourself, Jesus, to us in your word. Give us that kind of renewal, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.